Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Ukraine is regaining its territory from its Russian invaders as Secretary of State Antony Blinken again visits Kiev, pledging another $3 billion in USAID. This as North Korea ships millions of rockets to replenish Moscow's depleted stocks and may even be sending troops uh, to fight in the conflict shortly. Russia has cut off gas supplies to Europe, demanding sanctions imposed on Moscow after it invaded Ukraine to be dropped as European nations move to impose price profit, and energy use caps. The Senate next week will start markup of the Taiwan Policy Act that concerns the White House as China deepens its relationship with Russia. Britain's longest serving and one of its most consequential and admired leaders, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, passed away uh, yesterday at the age of 96 after seven decades of exemplary service to the nation and was succeeded by King Charles III, The transition is seen as a true inflection point uh, in British history as Liz Truss takes over as prime minister. And the implications of the nature of the classified documents found at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and is the co-host of uh, the Brussels Sprouts uh, podcast, uh, which is a must for anybody who uh, wants to know uh, how the Atlantic Alliance uh, is doing. Uh, And uh, Dr. Dov Zakheim, a former Pentagon comptroller who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. And one of our regulars, Michael Herson of American Defense International, is off this week and next. Uh, welcome, everybody. Great to have you on the program. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Uh, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. Uh, and we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, where our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International uh, and Leonardo DRS. Uh, and a note to check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a uh, deep and thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, again, welcome uh, back. Jim, uh, start us off. Anthony Blinken pledging another $3 billion in aid. That brings the total to a staggering amount uh, that's heading uh, to Kiev uh, as Ukraine Uh, starts to claw back uh, some territory, but Russia uh, is going to be energized. uh, And we'll hear from Patrick soon that the aid, uh, as he had mentioned uh, first uh, on our program many, many weeks ago, uh, that the North Koreans not only will be helping uh, Russia with arms, but also with people. And Vladimir Putin uh, was uh, just in China visiting with Xi Xi Jinping. Uh, Let's first start with this aid package and where we are uh, on the war, and then want to sort of get your take on where we are Uh, in terms of Europe's efforts um, to combat uh, the Russian energy weapon, right? Moscow hoping the demonstrations, the likes of which, and and we discussed in the Czech Republic and elsewhere, uh, there's going to be more of a contagion. Uh, There is the sense that that's likely not going to be the case. But first, walk us through what this new uh, aid package means uh, and when we're where we're where we're going as we head into the winter, and the and the Ukrainians apparently are committed not just to take back territory, uh, you know. Uh, uh, around Kherson, 
but actually moving to take back some territory as well, make make further gains in, in the Kharkiv area. Walk us through. Well, Vago, thanks so much. And uh, starting with the aid package, I think what's really interesting about this one is the $3 billion is not just for Ukraine. It's actually split between Ukraine and uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, the Ukraine package contains... Uh, uh, some some uh, uh, assets that you would use on an offensive. They were talking about armored vehicles and uh, other types of, of equipment that uh, one would expect at a time like this as the Ukrainians are beginning to make some inroads into what's been taken by the Russians. But what's more interesting is what is going to Central and Eastern Europe, which we're not clear, at least I haven't seen exactly what that is, but I think you can look at it in a couple of ways. One is that... Uh, this is probably, uh, my understanding is it's for military financing, it's FMF, and this is monies uh, that they would use to buy uh, military equipment and services from the U.S. Uh, it's likely to be used to replenish some of the stocks that have been given to, uh, to Ukraine, uh, and these stocks are probably uh, former Soviet equipment that Central and East European allies have had for a long time um, and, uh, and that Ukraine still uses. So this money will likely go to helping to replenish with modern Western weapons, um, those items that were sent out. And that could be like air defense, anti-tank, uh, communications gear, uh, things that, um, that these countries really need. And now they'll be able to get them in a more modern version than what they gave to Ukraine. Secondly, uh, coming out of the Madrid summit, the US was talking about not just US force posture, but also assisting uh, the allies along the front lines. And I think some of this might be also helping them to purchase big ticket items, uh, potentially like air defense um, or, um, or perhaps uh, harpoon types of systems for maritime um, defense as well. I think there's been a lot of lessons learned coming out of, of the fighting in Ukraine so that the nations along the front lines who might think they're gonna be next are looking at what they need to have a lot of right now. Uh, and that's also things like drones, a, a full panoply of drones, uh, not just the suicide drones that we've heard so much about, but ISR, jammers. I mean, there's all kinds of drones that uh, we're see, we see being used. And I think some of the newer allies are going to look on uh, buying those more modern drones and, uh, and some of the specialty drones as well. So, so I think to me, it's, it's great that the administration is turning to the allies to see what we can do to help them. Uh, and um, we'll see how much uh, the, the administration will continue to do that. Uh, there's, no, um, there's no guarantee that this isn't a one-time deal. Uh, we'll have to see how it goes and we'll learn details uh, as, this, as the uh, package is, is decided uh, and the monies are allocated and, and, uh, and that type of thing. You can imagine the last thing, you can imagine though that the actual purchases of equipment and the delivery of equipment in the Central, and Europe, Central East European nations is gonna take a while. That's not gonna just turn on a dime, but we might get more detail about what the priorities are for how this money is spent. Uh, and I should uh, also point out, uh, right, I mean, there was a, a major donor conference, obviously, uh, in, in uh, Europe where uh, Mark Milley, uh, Chairman Milley and, and Secretary Austin were, and uh, Poland announced that it's gonna buy uh, 96 uh, Apache uh, e uh, attack helicopters, right, which will uh, you know m move Poland further away from uh, its Soviet stocks uh, of equipment and thereby free some things up that might be able to go to the Ukrainians, given that they're more familiar, for example, with operating Heinz than they uh, than they are with um, uh, more Western equipment. Let me ask you about 
the energy discussions that are going on uh, today at the EU level, how to stretch out gas supplies. Uh, you you were noting that actually gas supplies are getting to the point where the Europeans will actually be okay in the uh, upcoming winter, especially if they make some uh, moves. Um, there appears to be strong public support for this because uh, you know Europeans are recognizing that you know this is being driven by Vladimir Putin. It's not the fault of their you know sort of incompetent leaders, even though we've discussed that all leaders could be doing a better job in making this case. Talk to us on the energy front, how strongly. The coalition, the alliance in the EU is hanging together at a time when Russia is using an, uh, uh, energy as a weapon and hoping, for example, that the kind of demonstrations that we've seen in uh, the Czech Republic, for example, spread more widely. Uh, right. I mean, Hungarians are very self-satisfied. Well, we have a good relationship with Moscow uh, and our economy is going to continue growing. Nanny, nanny, boo boo. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, there are those who might disagree with that kind of a compact by an EU nation. But anyway. Well, I think I think that the EU nations are still hanging together, and, and also NATO as well in terms of of, uh, of of Russia. And the cutoff of gas was no surprise. I think everyone knew that that was going to be potential, and I think that 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 in fact it's come to that point is isn't such a great surprise. And the past number of months, certainly since the invasion in February. A number of the uh, nations have gone out very quickly looking for other sources of energy, like to Algeria, or looking at liquefied nat uh, natural gas, uh, nuclear, in terms of Germany trying to figure out, can we, do we keep our, our uh, nuclear uh, generators, keep, uh, keep them going until December? Uh, there's a lot of talk back and forth, and, and the, the ability of nations to handle what will be a cold winter um, really, it depends on the country you're talking about. I think I've seen where I think it's the Dutch have reached uh, an 80% uh, fill of their of their gas reserves, and so I think they're feeling a bit more confident. Um, other nations are making uh, deals with one another to uh, to pass electricity back and forth if it's needed. Portugal, I think, uh, has a whole different uh, grid in terms of of the solar power and things that, that it uses. So. It really depends on the country uh, that you're talking about. And Hungary, I think, is an example that you raised as well. UK, that's for Liz Truss. She's got a, a big issue there with electric electricity prices and how to handle uh, taking care of people who are not going to be able to afford huge electricity bills as we get further into the winter. So every nation's got a different cut. And you said uh, rightly that today is the big day in the European Union. I think it's the energy Ministers and others are getting together to try to figure out which options, uh, capping, and uh, you, you mentioned some, uh, which options are the best for the EU to, to try to adopt and then take on to together deal with the winter. And we'll have to see what happens by the end of the day. But, but there's a lot of activity going on, both at the EU level as well at the, as at the country level. And then we'll have to see how things work as we get into the depths of the winter. And and look at uh, unity then, look at uh, if there's turmoil domestically in some of these countries, um, you know, the jury will be out until springtime, but certainly there's a lot of action going on. Let me bring uh, Patrick into uh, this discussion now. Patrick, you were uh, well ahead of the pack in saying that uh, the North Koreans uh, would not just give weapons, but actually uh, the, that there would also be personnel uh, that they would provide uh, to help the Russian war effort that has a shortage of weapons and a shortage of people. Uh, and Vladimir Putin just visited Xi Jinping uh, hat in hand and perhaps on one knee to try to see if he can get any help 
uh, from uh, more help from the Chinese aside from just buying energy because the you know w- once the Europeans do what they're doing, the energy weapon actually becomes much more muted. Um, and obviously another complicating factor in this, and perhaps uh, Dove, if we can get your sense on this, is that OPEC is not helping and why would they help, right? Uh, there's a different broader issue uh, on how maybe the nature of the relationship between uh, the United States and the West and, and, and Gulf countries perhaps changes in the wake of this. Give, give us your sense on what's next, the depth of this cooperation, and actually whether or not the Chinese, in part because they were mad about uh, Taiwan, uh, and what we're going to do with uh, because of potentially the Taiwan uh, uh, Policy Act, and we can get to that in a moment as well, might exacerbate and change China's role uh, in this conflict uh, as well. Well, Vaga, we may have to break out the axis of evil kind of rhetoric here, because unfortunately, Russia is finding ready partners in Iran, North Korea, but even in China. And I think this is uh, expressed to me this week by senior officials uh, in private that Um, They really thought that China would try to keep the distance from an aggressive Putin. Um, But in fact, they've become closer. And it's not just the Vostok uh, military exercises, but it is indeed this economic and military intertwinement of policy that is growing between Beijing and Moscow. And uh, it's sending a lot of signals. And I think it's part of the the backstory to why uh, Kim Jong-un has just been able to announce a major uh, kind of preemptive nuclear doctrine and law. Um, It's because they feel invigorated that there's political will on the part of these autocratic powers uh, led by Russia's uh, active invasion of Ukraine. So this is very concerning. I think here the good news on this is that, you know, Putin is lying through his teeth when he says there are no costs uh, that he's feeling. Um, He is feeling costs. Um, First of all, uh, Russians are dying. Um, that's why he needs uh, other troops uh, from elsewhere, because he can't rely on just uh, an endless stream of conscripts from Russia. Um, and it is exactly what was the undoing uh, of one of his predecessors over uh, Afghanistan, which was the killing of Russian soldiers, because that really does feel deep into into Russia. The second cost is the economic cost. He may think that he's getting energy benefits in the short term because the sanctions are squeezing uh, Europe and squeezing the world. Um, and there, as, as Jim was suggesting, and as Martin Wolf wrote in the Financial Times this week, you know, we need a, a global pushback to make sure that we can uh, weather this uh, sort of difficult winter, you know, LNG as a global cushion, for instance, um, and, and make sure that uh, while Putin gets uh, some gains from increased uh, energy costs, um, he also starts to feel real business uh, constraints and, and the economic levers uh, inside the Russian hierarchy uh, are starting to be further constrained. And I think th- that will take time, but I think those pains will, will multiply. And meanwhile, the cost of really of killing Russians, forget, you know, even before you get to the atrocities that he's committing, um, that should, that should uh, strangle uh, Putin's power. So he is not um, winning this war, um, and the fact that there's now a counteroffensive that's taking back communities, uh, you know, in the east, for instance, in in Ukraine, uh, is a sign that he's actually uh, losing ground at this point. And I think that's good. But for the ties with Russia, the ties with Iran, I think they're going to continue to grow. And I think that in China, this is the you know this is the sad part here, is that China is going to continue to work very closely with Russia partly because it divides the West. Um, and China, meanwhile, is very active on Taiwan policy, which we can talk about, and active you know, a few weeks ahead of the 20th Party Congress. 
Um, let me uh, the, the follow up question to that is the Chinese are, have been trying to, you know, certainly buying on the energy uh, front, uh, have stayed away from weapons transfers or at least right military, the civilian drones, perhaps are things that you can more easily ship over there or dual use uh, products. And there appears to be some evidence that that's happening. When you say they're going to deepen their relationship, how? Because the Chinese are very cautious and don't want to end up on the receiving end of our sanctions. I mean, again, uh, and I think Dove was on the leading edge of this, their economy is actually significantly worse off and getting worse, right? A new lockdown uh, that they have, um, right? So what is the nature of COVID-related lockdown? So what is the nature and how is it that the Russians would be excuse me, the Chinese would help the Russians, right? I mean, what are the next levels of this that we need to be prepared for? Yeah, in the short term, I think they do start to try to circumvent the sanctions. They don't want to be uh, caught directly violating the sanctions, but they'll use dual use technologies and other economic assistance to Russia, or they'll use cutout countries, including like Iran and North Korea or others to funnel um, technology to, to Russia, I suspect. Um, you know, they're still stopping short of providing direct military hardware, finished hardware to Russia. But uh, even that line may be crossed in the coming months. Uh, we'll have to see. Um, yes, China faces economic headwinds. Uh, we know that. A great report by my colleague, uh, John Lee from Australia, about uh, China's strategic decoupling strategy is a must read, a lot of data. And yet, China is still the manufacturing superpower. Uh, it's still a major economy. And so even though they shut down 21 million people in Chengdu this week, um, you know, they keep going. And, um, you know, they're not going to meet their economic targets, but they're still, uh, you know, military spending is a lagging indicator. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're still spending plenty on uh, arms and on aggression. Um, and I think their Taiwan policy is a, is a clear sign of that. They're penetrating their forces deeper into the airspace and water of Taiwan. Indeed, the missile flights, uh, test flights over Taiwan last month. Um, all of this shows a, a new level of aggression on the part of China. And it's, it has the attention of the White House at the top level um, that this relationship is deepening. So, you know, I, I can't say specifically, Vago, what systems they're going to be trying to, to sneak into Russia. But um, we should just expect there to be greater economic and military support from China uh, through various means to Russia. Uh, give us give us your sense sort of across uh, across that uh, piece uh, and what it means. Right. I mean, there are there are folks who um, look, for example, at the OPEC move uh, after the president of the United States, the French president, uh, British leaders, um, you know, pretty much every leader around the world having approached them and said, hey, look, can you guys produce some more energy? We really, really need it. And, they, you know. Mohammed bin Salman and others have just, uh, you know, sort of shrugged that off and said, well, we're making quite a lot of money. So sorry, um, as well as some payback associated with that as well. Right. How where 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 are we? Where are we going? Um, and and is this going to be fundamentally reordering relations with countries that the United States and, and its allies and partners have also considered? allies and partners, uh, because as the Saudis, as the Emiratis uh, get wealthier um, and go through their own cultural changes, they're feeling their oats and they're saying, well, we're global players like anybody else. And we don't care whether the United States is putting pressure on it. Um, there is an upthrust middle finger. And if you don't like it, jump in a lake. We will give, you know, we will shelter 
Russian money, we will help circumvent sanctions. And that's just the way it's going to be. Live with it. Well, a couple of things. First, uh, on American support for Ukraine and how long it'll go on, uh, Tony Blinken uh, said the other day that the United States will hang in as long as it takes. Now, obviously, promises that we've made have been broken before. Ask the Shah of Iran. Uh, but on the other hand, or um, Afghans, or Afghans, I mean, or Vietnamese, I mean, you could go on and on. On the other hand, our credibility right now uh, still needs a lot of restoration, to put it mildly. And so if Blinken and the United States are seen as not coming through on this, the other uh, developments that uh, you've just mentioned, that Patrick has mentioned, are just going to intensify. Uh by the way, there's competition among the Europeans for that, for the uh, uh, energy supplies that might be available. For instance, the French, I think Macron was over in, Lib in uh, Algeria trying to patch things up because they had a spat so that he could get a hold of Algerian oil. And it turned out the right. Italians had already beaten them uh, right. to the pump. So you've got an internal competition within the EU that's just going to complicate matters even more. From the Gulf perspective, let me let me point out that uh, it seems and Patrick can correct me, but certain Chinese spokesmen are saying, well, the United States really only accounts for 20 percent of the world's GDP. And so if it wants to isolate itself, go right ahead, because we're going to all go ahead without you. To some extent, I think the Gulf states have bought that argument and they're basically saying, you know what, if you guys try to pressure us. We just don't care. Uh, everything that they've been doing, including the deals with Israel and so on, all are indications, and they've been indications for some time, that they just don't know where we're headed. And it's not just a matter of who the next president will be. They don't know how we are internally and, and whether the extreme left, which is anti-everything, and the extreme right, which is isolationist, will become more powerful they're hedging their bets. And uh, given that hedging bets means more money for them, I think that's going to go on. Uh, and frankly, the same with China, uh, as Patrick said. Uh, if their attitude is indeed, and I think it is to a, an increasing extent, that they can live at least to some extent without the United States, because the United States can't really walk away from them entirely either, um, they will go ahead and do what they feel they need to do with Putin and tell America, okay, so what are you gonna do about it? And since we're already worried about what they're gonna do about Taiwan, how much will we really do? How much gumption will we really have to put any kind of additional pressure on them? So I think we're facing a whole bunch of problems. I don't know whether the administration or any administration could handle all of those. We have a terrible record at walking and chewing gum at the same time. And boy, there are a lot of things going on. Um, and, and right, I mean, I, at, at the time, um, I think that if, you know, looking at it from a strategy perspective, right, I mean, the Obama administration's uh, evolving caution on this was that our power, our relative power is declining as other powers rise. And so our ability to really stick it to somebody was not the same, for example, as it was for Dwight Eisenhower, right? Dwight Eisenhower and Suez could stick it to France and to Israel and to Britain uh, in a way that, I mean, they were just impotent in terms of their ability to respond. Whereas, as you said, right, Dove, as, as your relative power decreases and everybody else's power increases, 
your your margin. So what are some of the things the United States can still do? I mean, is this more carrot? Is there any stick? Um, because the United States still has a lot of powerful sticks. But again, right, one of the big concerns um, that we had and we used to discuss on this program during the Trump era was there are limits to how you can also use the dollar limit dollar based trade before everybody else bands up against the dollar, right? I mean, they're, you know, Europeans weren't particularly crazy. The United States uses this as a weapon against them either, right? I mean, so far the dollar has still survived as the reserve currency of the planet, but uh, it's not that the Chinese aren't trying to do it. What are some of the relative power tool, the, the tools the United States has against Gulf nations that are increasingly seeing themselves as a, in a compact condominium alliance with Israel and increasingly, you know, and and increasingly warmer toward China and Russia. Well, um, you know, as authoritarian states, they have yeah, they're, sort they're of a, common common cause. Three tools that, that come to mind, uh, at least to my mind. Uh, the first is um, to continue supplying the Ukrainians with everything that they need. I don't even if China, China as Patrick said, is going is not necessarily going to openly supply Putin. And I don't know that China can really bail Putin out if the Ukrainians continue to progress as they have. Fundamentally, Putin and his troops, and I don't care if they're North Koreans, Chechens or Russian draftees, have a problem, which all authoritarian countries have, which is there's no independent decision making at lower levels. The Ukrainians are good at that. They've demonstrated they're good at that. They've also demonstrated they're good at coming up with ersatz weapons that really are damaging the Russians. So as long as we can continue helping with training, and the British are doing that, by the way, and helping uh, with weapons, I I think that is one major way to still get our way. Uh, A second, uh, quite frankly, is telling the Europeans, you better get your act together because you still need us. We're still a major trading partner of yours. And you people are absolutely as scared of Russia, if not more scared of Russia than we are. So you better stay on board. And I think that so far has worked and I think it'll continue to work. And the third thing with respect to the Arabs is very simple. We've got a lot of troops in that region and there's a lot of pressure to pull them out. Now, there are very good reasons for keeping a presence there. Whether the presence has to be as large as it currently is, is another question. And whether the the Gulf Arabs will feel that relying on China will give them the same degree of protection that America does, particularly since they remain scared of Iran and the Chinese are not necessarily going to help them vis-a-vis Iran. I think that's another uh, weapon we have or arrow we have in our quiver. We've got to be careful about all three. Well, maybe not about the first. We should keep going on Ukraine without hesitation. But we've got to be careful about how we do these things. But nevertheless, there are ways to pass messages. And if we have a little bit of subtlety, hopefully uh, we can get those messages across. Couldn't agree with you more, right? I mean, ultimately, we are the security guarantor. And if the United States were to somehow say, hey, look, we're not going to do this, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE are not going to be able to wage that. They may be, they may be able to have a certain uh, success against the Iranians, but it's not abundantly clear that they, they would with us. And, and you're absolutely right. The Russians and the Chinese are not going to want any skin in, uh, in, that, uh, in that game. Uh, Jim, let me just bring you back uh, into this and, and sort of we've covered a lot of ground and sort of get your bite at this. And 
you know, I mean, the big question is not European will. I think there's a, a, a dramatic increase in European will to do more. The question is financial resources. The pound is at its lowest level since the 1980s. The euro is uh, now cheaper than the dollar, um, right? And the bills that nations are racking up are absolutely massive. I mean, France has been trying to minimize the energy impact on its population, in part by covering some of these costs, which is enormous. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, where are we, you know, and however you want to comment on all of this, but also where are we in, in the will and the means, right? You have the will, you may not have the means to be able to build up those military capabilities to the point where Europe will be able to backfill the United States if it, if it goes. And again, I mean, everybody misunderstands what Emmanuel Macron is saying. He's not saying the United States is not important. Part of his argument is the United States is the only nation able to go and fight China, God forbid, if it has to. We're the ones who are going to have to backfill them to handle European security, help in the Middle East and help in Africa when, when they go to fight the big game, right? So we, we have to be better allies to do it. The question is whether they even have the resources to do it. So take us in any direction on that uh, you want before we move on to the Taiwan Policy Act uh, uh, discussion. Uh, well, that's uh, lots of directions to go to go with that one. But uh, just a couple things. One is this idea about uh, the U.S. focusing on uh, on the Asia Pacific while Europe takes on more of a load uh, dealing with Russia, kind of a division of labor. That's been kicked around for a while now, even before the invasion. Uh, myself and others last year were talking about, you know, um, how can we do Pacific as well as Europe at the same time? That's a, that's a big topic. But you're right in terms of uh, if we were to have a division of labor, and in fact, uh, it, it might be forced on us, uh, the European nations now, the allies, and we're talking about the older, the Western allies, um, you know, it's they're, they're beginning to put money into defense, which is great, but there's a long lag time between money going into a budget and a capability appearing in an arsenal, uh, you know, or on the on, in the field. So it's a bit late, I think, uh, for uh, Macron and others to say we need to take up more of the load. I'm glad to hear it and I'm better late than never. But I don't think we can expect major leaps in uh, European military capability between now and you know, it's, it's going to take five years, if not more, particularly because a lot of what some a lot of what will be needed for the West Europeans are bigger ammunition stocks, their own HIMARS, their own drones. I mean, there's been there's a lot of makeup that is going to have to be done by the allies. Um, and uh, so even if there was the means, uh, the lag time that makes it, you know, the horse has kind of left the barn in a lot of ways. But your point on means is important, too. I mean, um, I there is a lot of worry now, and you see this uh, coming out of all parts of Europe now, uh, a lot of worry about the economy and a, and a recession coming down on them. And, um, and so there will be monies having to be spent on domestic concerns. You mentioned supplementing um, the cost of electricity. Uh, that's not just France, but UK and others will be having to deal with uh, domestic requirements to avoid turmoil in the streets during the wintertime. So how much of the monies that they're talking about putting into defense uh, actually end up there and not diverted to something else. I understand that uh, yesterday in Berlin, there was quite a debate about whether Germany is going to meet the 2% um, in terms of their GDP for defense. They have pledged to do it. Uh, they put a, you know, a lot of money towards defense a couple months ago, as you know, uh, through the speech that was made by Schultz. And um, now there's talk that, uh, well, maybe not all that money is going to make it into the budget to make it to 2% this year. So so we're already seeing these signs. So it is a race between 
um, uh, the unity on the one hand and staying together uh, and the means to ensure that that unity remains in the, in the teeth of a cold winter, um, energy issues and a potential recession. Uh, so I, we'll have to see what happens uh, as we get into the wintertime. But there is a lot of concern right now over this in Europe. Dub, do you want to add anything to, to this before we move to TPA and a couple of other things? Well, I was just going to point out that, you know, the, the Europeans uh, are talking about retaining uh, their nuclear plants. Uh, we are considering that as well. And that creates a huge problem, especially in Europe, because Greens are much more powerful in Europe than the environmentalists are here, although they've become quite powerful here. But there they're in the government, they in Germany and elsewhere. Uh, and if not in government, powerful opposition. And so how, they, how the governments are gonna reconcile the opposition to nuclear power with their need for nuclear energy is gonna be a big issue over the next few months, I think. Patrick, you have a quick uh, contact uh, group point uh, you want to make. Go ahead. I just want to reinforce the point that Dub was making about the need to show strength on Ukraine. And, and I thought the, the picture of the Secretary of Defense with the Secretary General and all of those allies with the Ukraine, Ukraine contact group um, spoke a thousand words in terms of the solidarity that we have uh, formed over the last seven months because of Russian aggression. Uh, as long as we can maintain that kind of unity, um, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not that worried about, you know, conversations between Russia and China and, uh, you know, in Iran and, and North Korea. I mean, they're a threat, but um, that kind of unity is exactly what we need to maintain the peace. Uh, in, in, indeed, uh, pictures are worth a thousand words, especially in, in moments like this. Um, OK, move, moving on. Uh, Patrick, I'm going to go to you. Uh, yesterday, we had a great program uh, with uh, Chip Gregson. Uh, and uh, Mark Montgomery, and we were talking about the Taiwan Policy Act. Uh, obviously, it's going to get marked up uh, next week. We've discussed it on this program. In fact, Chip uh, joined us on the roundtable a couple of weeks ago, and you talked about you've talked about it a couple of times as well. Real uh, sleeper issue, uh, but one that is significant. Some of them are no-brainer: increased interoperability. Um, you know, normalize it. I mean, right now, sort of ad hoc in the way that we're going about it. But other elements of it could be more problematic. Um, and it's not that the White House is opposed to it. The White House has a natural opposition to Congress telling anything that would appear to handcuff the administration and its ability to prosecute foreign policy. Um, walk us through the nuances of this. What are the good elements of it? What are potentially the more problematic elements of it? I mean, Chip's point uh, was we shouldn't self-deter because ultimately the Chinese are going to do what they are. And they're very provocative as it is. And it's time for us to actually really push back on them in a way that delivers messages. We don't have to make them a non-NATO ally, but we can study whether or not they should become a non-NATO ally. Your, your sense on where we are and the nuance of the White House position, because I think anybody who knows Jake Sullivan uh, or Kurt Campbell or Antony Blinken or the president know they're pretty tough on China. The question is the nuance with which you deliver that toughness. And there is a lot of bipartisan support in uh, of Taiwan. Uh, there's no question about that. But but the situation is fluid, and there's a lot of pressure on the U.S. government to consider changing, overhauling its Taiwan policy. Um, and so you see that in the TPA, in the Taiwan Policy Act, <clears throat> and in the markup. So when um, part of the division between the White House and Congress is simply the split between uh, government branches. I mean, the legislative branch 
has owned the Taiwan Relations Act ever since we uh, sort of uh, ended relations with the ROC, Republic of China, and switched over to the PRC as our official diplomatic recognition. Um, and the Taiwan Relations Act has become central to that policy, but it needs an overhaul. And that's what uh, Senators Menendez and Graham and others are trying to do with this TPA. But by doing that, they may ruin some of the flexibility that any executive branch, Democrat or Republican, would want uh, in dealing with these issues to exercise judgment, because these are potentially some very fast moving things. So if you're going to have automatic sanctions on China's big banks in response to aggression, that's something that the White House, any White House, is going to want to have a, a say in. They don't want it to be automatic from Congress. Um, and also, they don't want there to be, and I think this is Jake Sullivan's real point, you know, he, he supports the arms sales, but he's probably got concern about, um, you know, the upscaling of relations, you know, going from director to representative or talking about uh, Taiwan as a major non-NATO state. That could start to look like you're, you're throwing symbols from Congress toward Taiwan, but you're not actually reassuring Taiwan anymore, and you're not deterring China anymore. And that's a big concern. So real deterrence, real reassurance, I think a lot of bipartisan support on that. Question is, how do you get there? And, and Congress is playing its role by uh, working the TPA, this Taiwan Policy Act, rather than, by the way, revise the Taiwan Relations Act. That's too difficult. Um, so they're going to layer on a new set of provisions. And I think um, I think the administration has to work with Congress on this. I think that's the bottom line. There's so much pressure on the U.S. government to update it. And all and by the way, I mean a lot of this pressure is coming from Taipei. So Taipei is uh, the key point here is that the Taiwan Armed Forces are potentially uh, they're really on the front lines of of an escalation potential here with China as China penetrates their forces into Taiwan's airspace and water and over Taiwan we're more likely to see not just a drone shot down, but something escalate. And the Taiwan Armed Forces have to revise or consider revising the rules of engagement. And they don't have a, a division of uh, roles and missions with US forces. And they would love to have that kind of discussion on roles and missions. I don't think that's gonna happen at least directly, but there need to be a lot more discussions about the rules of engagement that Taiwan Armed Forces are gonna have to take because they cannot wait anymore for an asymmetric defense. They have to be proactive in, in, in against this kind of aggression that China has stepped up. The new normal, in other words, since Speaker Pelosi's visit has been to break down the median line completely um, and to be unpredictable. And that operational unpredictability on the part of the PLA is forcing the Taiwan Armed Forces to think about the new rules of engagement. That means the United States, Japan, others have to think about how do they respond how do they support uh, Taiwan Armed Forces? So a very complicated, changing, and yes, dangerous uh, set of flashpoints. And that's why National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is urging some caution as he discusses these issues with Taiwan. He's also signaling for the Biden administration to Beijing that they do want to be responsible about managing these tensions across the Taiwan Strait, because right now Beijing and Xi Jinping in particular are penalizing the Biden administration for, for not restraining uh, Speaker Pelosi from their perspective, uh, and they want to keep using that now as a lever uh, against the Biden administration. The Biden administration has to resist that um, and pursue our interests and, and at the same time keep the lines open for the dialogue, including a summit meeting that's likely to happen in November between uh, President Biden and Xi Jinping. Any uh, savvy administration knows when to make Congress the bad cop and itself the good cop. Uh, and here, I think the administration is doing a pretty good job going to the Chinese, look, I'm trying to be the good guy in this, right? Hey, yes. Uh, let's 
let's uh, let's you know these guys can get really unreasonable unless you don't rein it in. Um, Dove, uh, I know you want to weigh in on this. Uh, go ahead because we've got a couple of other issues uh, to talk about. One of which is uh, classified documents in in Mar-a-Lago. Go ahead. Well, P- Patrick is spot on, and what you just said was what I was going to say because when I was negotiating with a number of countries when I was comptroller on finances. Um, I would simply say, listen, if you don't want to work with me, go and work with the Congress. Uh, Congress was always ahead of us on these sorts of matters. So uh, good cop, bad cop is exactly right. Uh, I do think the administration is handling it pretty well, as as both you and Patrick have said. One other point, uh, in terms of any kind of financial sanctions against China, I just want to remind folks, they probably don't recall this, uh, but... Ronald Reagan, at a time when we dominated the world economy, uh, listened to Jim Baker, then Secretary of the Treasury, and did not impose financial sanctions on Russia, uh, on the Soviet Union. And I know that because I was at that meeting, and a lot of the people around the table were absolutely shocked that Reagan went along with Baker. But if that was the case then, then it's certainly the case now. Um, Let me... uh take uh, you all, uh, two of you uh, studied in the United Kingdom, uh, and everybody uh, on this uh, program has spent an enormous amount of time in the United Kingdom. I would not be here if it wasn't for the British Empire, uh, giving uh, my maternal grandparents a a chance uh, after the Armenian genocide to restart their lives uh, in British Cyprus um, and and, uh, recover uh, from uh, the traumas that they had experienced. Let's talk both uh, about the elevation of Liz Truss. Uh, Dove, you've got a a great piece uh, that ran in the Hill. Britain's Liz Truss will keep uh, the U.S.-U.K. special relationship strong. Um, I I think that there is a poignant uh, historical significance uh, to Her Majesty's first prime minister uh, was Winston Churchill, and her last official duty was uh, to um, ask Liz Truss to form a government. Uh, two days before uh, she passed away uh, at uh, the age of 96 after having led a full life uh, and a consequential uh, life of seven decades uh, of service to the nation. Um, Quickly, Dove, talk to us about, you know, a lot of concerns about the rhetoric that Liz Truss has put out, her beholdence to, as a remainder, to the uh, Brexit wing uh, of the party to beat uh, Rishi uh, Sunak um, during even the campaign. She did say some things that were uh, questioned the special relationship. We got into a tussle with Emmanuel Macron, which I think Macron handled quite adultly. Um, you know, w- w- there is this sense um, of concern. W- why is it that folks should should not be concerned uh, from from your standpoint? Well, a couple of things. First, I heard her speak uh, in person, uh, briefly chatted with her when she was here a few months back. And she certainly didn't sound like anybody who uh, was questioning the special relationship. Quite the contrary. Uh, People say all sorts of things in campaigns. Uh, Everybody does. Every presidential candidate does. Every prime ministerial candidate does. Uh, That doesn't matter. In fact, she's already turned around just uh, in the last 24 hours and has said that she might consider bracking for the U.K., Uh, which has not been conservative party or anybody's party's policy for some time. So let's see what she does. And and explain and explain and and explain that to the audience and what that means. Well, uh, you know, fracking like in this country has been. Oh, no, excuse me. I'm sorry. I thought you said. 
ne- never mind. I thought you said bracking. Uh, sorry. Three, two, one. Continue. Chris, please cut okay. that out. Three, two, one. Continue. Yeah. Uh, remember also, yes, she was a remainer, but she flipped quite a while ago uh, as uh, and is now a solid Brexiteer. I think the most important point, and I mentioned this in my piece today, she is a follower of Margaret Thatcher. And Margaret Thatcher, of course, saw the special relationship as the anchor to British security policy. Um, She's a a follower of Thatcher on free enterprise. Um, And so I honestly do think that even though on domestic issues, she and Mr. Biden will not get along when it comes to international issues, uh, I think we're going to be in the same place as, as Britain has been with us for decades and decades. Uh, and so uh, in terms of, of the passing of the queen, you know, uh, everybody I know uh, uh, doesn't didn't know, didn't uh, have any other monarch. I mean, I was three or four years old when she became queen. I'm one month younger than Prince Char- than King Charles. And so I do hope that uh, just as I would like to stick around for a while and stay active, I think uh, The new king will uh, be an active ruler. He recognizes that times have changed for Britain. Uh, This is not the same Britain that I first uh, encountered when I got there 40 plus years ago. Uh, And uh, he seems to be somebody who understands that. And as long as he does, I think he'll be a successful monarch. And and I, I want to point out, right, he is also somebody who has had relationships, you know, he is a man of 72. So he also has relationships and knows a lot of these world leaders and has indeed been picking up for his uh, mother. Uh, yeah, by the, the past, way, uh, I, I need to correct my math. I first came to Britain almost 60 years ago. <laughs> yes, I, I was I was going to correct that for you, uh, knowing your history well, Dove, but I decided not to not to do that and, and let you uh, handle it. Uh, Jim, from from your perspective and then Patrick want to get your uh, sense on this as well. But, uh, you know, is is, uh, you know, I mean, your sense on on where Liz Truss is going to fall because, I mean, some of her comments were like, we shouldn't be so beholden to the special relationship that it impedes global Britain. And they're going to go ahead with the legislation that is going to provoke Brussels uh, at a time when I, th- I think we can all agree the British economy is doing worse than the European economies are doing. Um, and it's a very problematic time. And again, I mean, to me, it's not will. Britain wants to re- you know, re- you know, improve its military capabilities and play a bigger role in Asia. The reality is it may simply run out of money. Anyway, your, your sense on, on uh, Liz Truss and what she means. Well, I, I think Liz Truss seems to be someone who likes to bluster. She likes to make comments like, uh, you know, we shouldn't let the special relationship get in our way, et cetera, et cetera. And the special relationship itself is you really have to define what that means because it means different things to different people, depending on which country you're in. There is a special relationship, but it's but it's something that uh, the U.S. and the U.K. will do what is in their national interests, uh, despite whatever that quote unquote special relationship is. But I think with with Liz Truss, she blusters when she was foreign minister and she was with. Uh, the Russians, if you remember, uh, she was um, had a bit of a gaffe in talking about Ukraine and the, the geography of Ukraine versus Russia. Um, so I think she says a lot of things. But when they when politicians get into power and, and Dove has said this, but I think in the UK, it'll have to be with Liz Truss, too. There are certain immovable objects that you uh, you have to uh, deal with. And she's going to have to deal with the fact that that they are very closely tied to the U.S., not just militarily, but increasingly um, on the economic financial side, too, given where uh, the UK is vis-a-vis the European Union. So 
Um, I, I think, and again, I'll echo Dub, I don't think we're going to see a lot of change at all when it comes to foreign and defense policy. Um, and I think we'll see a continued tightening between the U.S. and the U.K. militaries and, and almost an integration in some of the areas. And domestically, we'll have to see. She's got a lot of problems on her hands and she might come in spouting Margaret Thatcher, but she might run into uh, other realities uh, in terms of the domestic side. So we'll see. Let's give her some some time and uh, and we'll let's talk about it a few months from now. See where she see where she is. Patrick. Um, your 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 sense uh, on all of this uh, and on uh, the passing uh, of Her Majesty. Well, having lived in the UK for six years, I feel fondly about uh, Britain. Britain obviously is a stronger ally for being independent, um, just as we're a strong, great nation for being independent. Um, I think Margaret Thatcher uh, was like Queen Elizabeth in the sense that there was never any question about the values, constancy, or steadiness. Um, Liz Truss, on the other hand, is somebody who has to prove herself on those on that score. Even though I completely agree with Dove and and Jim that you know we're going to see um, a continuity, we're going to see great uh, focus on a special relationship flourish, and I think this is going to be um, manifested in the Indo-Pacific uh, in the AUKUS agreement. Next week is the um, you know we're at the one year anniversary of the announcement of the Australia UK US um, defense partnership six months to go before Australia has to actually say what kind of submarine they're going to uh, field. Um, and meanwhile, they're negotiating uh, some kind of a, either the astute or Virginia class um, presence that they might have uh, deployed uh, and built in the UK or the US before they, these things are ever built in, in Adelaide in Australia. Um, and I think that's going to be the, you know, the big security test in the Indo-Pacific uh, in terms of delivering results for for uh, Prime Minister Truss, uh, even though she's, yeah, first thing is 150 billion pound uh, energy uh, bailout to try to get through this winter um, and deal with inflation and deal with other economic uh, turbulence right now that she's inheriting a, a very tough economy. So she's got tough issues. I remember being, you know, being in the UK the first time when Margaret Thatcher was fighting uh, the strikes in the coal mines. And, um, you know, this is a similar economic uh, winter of discontent for a, a UK prime minister, but I think um, she will rally and I think she will try to very much emulate uh, her mentor, uh, Margaret Thatcher. Um, I, I, the sense though of free fall is very palpable among my British uh, friends where they feel like this is really an inflection point uh, that they've passed on a variety of things, right? Liz Truss is not Margaret Thatcher, um, you know? And so that was underscored. Um, and, um, you know, again, I mean, the constancy of Her Majesty. Uh, but then again, you know, you have to admire uh, the way the British monarchy works, um, right? It's, it's, the queen is dead, God bless the king. Uh, and it was immediate that, you know, on her passing, Prince Charles became King Charles III, um, which, um, you know, and it, of course, we will see the pageantry of, of, of all of that uh, as time goes on. Um, but you just have to admire Her Majesty and, and the work that she's consistently done. And indeed, you know, you could look at what King Charles has done through his charities and the great works. Uh, and so it will be interesting to see the course of the British monarchy going forward. Um, very quickly, uh, Dove, I'm going to put this question to you at uh, Mar-a-Lago. Uh, obviously, a lot of classified documents uh, seized from the president's uh, home, including 
some extremely sensitive documents. Uh, and Washington uh, has a lot of people who know things and there are murmurs about exactly how serious a breach this is. Um, I know friends, allied friends um, who are very concerned. Uh, these were nuclear special access information. You know, the, there's a whole range of speculation, whether they were British, whether they were French, whether they were Israeli, whether these documents were en route to serve the president's or his family's interests, whether being sent to Saudi Arabia in exchange for loan guarantees, right? I mean, the stories abound. This is all in the realm of speculation, but it's not the kind of speculation you want to hear. And these are not the kind of documents that should be in a basement with a padlock on them. Um, what, what does all of this mean? And what does this mean for intelligence relationships overall? And Jim or Patrick, if you guys want to briefly weigh in on that, we just have a couple more minutes left, but go ahead. Well, it, it makes everything that much harder. I mentioned earlier in this podcast that we're still trying to catch up when it comes to credibility. And this certainly doesn't help, whether it's intelligence, whether it's between state and other foreign offices, whether it's the military, whether it's just more generally about how people think about the United States. Um, this is just one more problem that we're going to have to somehow overcome. Uh, you know, the, the cover sheets that showed up in, in photographs uh, are not likely to make to reassure our allies and friends and those who care about us that uh, we're uh, we're on top of everything. And I think credibility is the real issue here. I, I just to jump in, I, I agree with Dove and I, I, I there's a probably a fear in some of the intelligence community as well about the uh, sources and methods. I mean, we we you've heard this before, but I think the real fear is that uh, from the uh, Brits or French or others who might have some of their own um, sources and methods that are a part of this, that might be in one of these documents where they don't want to be uh, known uh, a relationship on a particular issue or whatever it might be. And they're probably sitting there very nervous about what might be in some of those, uh, some of those documents. So it's not just our own national security and our own intelligence sources and methods that are at risk, but the other allies uh, or partners who might be part of that. And the way that um, uh, in, the, in the past, Trump has brought people uh, down to, uh, you know, to, um, you know, I'm not sure exactly what they saw, but there were these stories of some of the guests and some of the friends having uh, a peek at some of these things. I, I just, uh, I think, I think there's a Probably as a result of this, some of the our intelligence partners will be pulling back and saying, look, uh, we can't afford to have something like this happen again, whether it's this president, uh, Trump or somebody else. So if anything, I think it's going to make uh, the, our foreign intelligence relationships a bit uh, sticky uh, now that this kind of thing has been uncovered. Well, I mean, and, and there, this has been the subject of widespread reporting by legitimate news outlets, right? that the former president requested a list of our most classified agents. And the following October and October 21, a, a lot of those agents, particularly those in Russia, were all rounded up. And so there is a concern that there may be a link between those two uh, polls, which, um, you know, we're, we're not the only guys reading those news stories, uh, right? Uh, Patrick, uh, you get the last word before we part for the week. Yeah, a lot of alarming dimensions about this, but Dove and Jim are absolutely right about the security implications for dealing with allies and partners. I'm thinking right now about our South Korean allies. We're about to sit down with them. 
for new extended uh, deterrence strategy consultation group talks uh, this this month. Uh, and that's in the in the wake of North Korea announcing a new law saying we can have preemptive nuclear strikes if we fear uh, imminent attack on on the leader or important strategic targets. Um, and so we have to be sure that we're working with South Korea very closely, because right now, even though President Yoon has said he doesn't want to build nuclear weapons, that's a political statement. Uh, in reality, South Korea right now is going back to where they were 30, 40, 50 years ago, which is to think about how do they get closer to the nuclear threshold. Um, and um, if we're not absolutely trusting each other on these issues, uh, we could end up having some very serious gaps in our alliance. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. A terrific conversation. Uh, as always, uh, hope you guys have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.